Hi, I'm Ann DeLisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we speak with Chef Andrew Carmelini, a restaurateur and James Beard Foundation two-time awardee. We talk about the ways in which the restaurant industry has changed in Carmelini's 32 years as a chef and about the future of the cooking profession. But before we got to any of that, we had an impromptu conversation about his time on Iron Chef, and that was how our interview started. Um, and I, I did Iron Chef the very first year and did not like that. Who'd you go against? Mario. And we wiped his ass off the floor, but they had uh, <laughs> they the the... The producer came down um, and uh, changed her score. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say. What do you mean? No, this is he not came, a He came down from the, well, you know, because they, they're basically like, they do, uh, uh, they do, they're like, it could be one of three ingredients, right? And so mm-hmm. in our case, it was Parmesan, uh, leeks, and cauliflower. So we were like, it's probably going to be Parmesan, right? Because like battle leek isn't like the sexiest. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like okay. <laughs> Like four people would like <laughs> find that cool, you know. <laughs> but so we actually practiced all three. We did three different menus. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, just to kind of like you know, and uh, so we get there in the morning time, and like there's like, it's still like you know to try to like sort of like fool you. There's like three different pile of ingredients, right? And it's like there's this huge pile of leeks and like a <laughs> thing of tomatoes, and then there's like a bunch of cauliflower with like one thing and then there's like all the stuff you you're actually going to use you know it's like okay it's parmesan and then like the iron chef guy like that was mario they have like uh yeah first of all they were oh that's what they were they were like my 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 menu the ingredient list i sent them i said well it's middle white truffle season i have parmesan i I want white truffles like we can't do it it's not in the show budget i was like how about if i bring them and their answer was it won't be fair to the iron chef so the thing starts, we start rolling, and then I knew this was gonna happen. I said I said it was gonna happen. They were like, Iron Chef Mario Batali just took out the hugest white truffle you've ever seen. Yeah. And yeah. I I was I almost pulled like a Bobby Flay and like like yeah. just like stopped Jumped my, on like, your cutting giant. board. I was like I was like two seconds from doing that and I was like, keep it classic Carmelini. <laughs> Like, yeah. Well, that just, was like just showing what you got. <laughs> that was also like controversial at the time. I feel like it was pre-Instagram social media days. But like Bobby Flay stood on his cutting board in the Japanese show. I think it was the Japanese Iron Chef, and it was very controversial. It's very wait, wait. And we started because this is great right now. Oh yeah, it's yeah. It's recording. You're recording. Right, good, 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 yeah. Good, yeah. Good. But do you remember? I mean, I know you remember. You probably don't know this, and this is early. I mean, maybe you do. I don't want to take it away. You know, you might have been following Bobby Flay then, but that was kind of what gave him this like bad boy Bobby. I didn't. Rumor, I, I guess. I mean, he's. I think he's. I, I didn't he, know about that. Yeah, but uh, I, I don't did know. watch I just, Iron Chef. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know. But what year would that have been? Uh, this is. I'll tell you exactly what year this. This was uh, two thousand seven. Oh, okay. Yeah. Listen, the original Japanese one was amazing. It was like I used to watch it all the See, time. I liked it was so amazing. And, uh, was so and even amazing. like the first couple ones he did in, this, in uh, years were pretty good because they had like they had some really good chef de cuisines on, you know. So it was actually, you know, but then. You know, I, I you know once my, we did ours and then it aired, I was like, "What the hell is this?" Like, yeah. Well, I, I mean, was like, because I'm <sighs> anything Morimoto too. I mean, I feel like that. I mean, obviously all the chefs were great that they were on there, but anything Morimoto. Mm-hmm. I mean, just watching that guy, you know, busting out ice, ice sculptures in the middle, yeah. to like cold smoke <laughs> things. You're like, "What is this?" Yeah. That was some of the best. I mean, that was, to me was like the heyday of like food television. Was anything Morimoto live? Yeah, anyway. those. Yeah, those were good. It's yeah, it's, it's yeah. It food culture generally is. 
pretty horrible right now. <laughs> um, Why do yeah. you say that? Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like the old guy in the room, uh, but it's like the, uh, you know, food wasn't cool when I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, no one was really talking about it, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school um, in uh, 1989, and I told people what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I went to Catholic college prep school, so I was like, yeah, I'm moving to New York, and I'm going to go to cooking school. I'm going to go work at a four-star <laughs> French restaurant. And it might as well have said that I was going to be like going to the priesthood or like going to the military, right? It was like, like no one, it was just, the restaurants were just a place for like drug addicts and sexual deviants. Um, and, uh, you know, media's changed, you know, it changed a lot. There was this heyday, you know, and I look back of like, uh, I would say American gastronomy that started in the late eighties, but it was really only, only in New York, one restaurant in Chicago, maybe one or two in California. Um, where it really was kind of about food culture and enjoying food and, you know, the um, kind of at the table and um, the history of that and celebrating what we have in America. And then it got ridiculous. I would call it like 2005. It was just, it was, it, beca it became kind of like hair bands in 1991. You could feel that like this was not going to last, you know, because like, Chefs were everywhere, and there were a lot of like people that were calling themselves chefs that were never even worked in kitchens. And you know, there was a lot of like a lot of dopes on TV. Some of them that worked for me that couldn't do anything. They were on TV, and they were like pretending they were trying to get on. You know, I mean, trying to get on TV, and uh, it was just it was just like this circle of like what the profession was, and uh, when really the profession, it's just it's it's a very blue collar trade oriented job. You know what I mean? And it wasn't. And um, and can you imagine in, I don't know, when Food Network started, what year that was, 90-whatever? Yeah. Can you imagine if they started the Plumber Network? <laughs> and they went out and they found, like, the 10 most good-looking, I mean, charismatic, HGTV. talented <laughs> talented plumbers, you know, and then said, okay, we're going to each give you shows, okay, and we're going to have to do 24-hour programming. And, uh, you know, and they're going to show this, like, this cool trade you have. Um, so you go from like plumber guy to like someone's on TV and then everyone knows who you are. How, how do you think you're going to behave? You know, how do you think you're going to like, <laughs> what do you think is going to actually happen? And it all happened. I think too, uh, like there's a lot of excitement from like the, the actual producers of, of culinary content when you get 7 million viewers or an Emmy nomination. And then you're like, okay. And then other people follow Now you got to go find chefs. So if like, you know, you start digging, you start mining, you know, it's not when you strike gold, great. But then now you're, now you're like, now you're panning gold on the side of the river, just any little nugget, you'll take it and you'll run with it. I think that, I think that's yeah, the bigger problem nowadays is that there's food content on every single streaming service. You, you name it, you can find the food content. Then there's, there's certainly not that many incredibly disciplined, talented people to fill every single episode of every single show. Yeah. And so you end up with a lot of fluff. Well, yeah, it, you know, this is the same in many kind of um, different disciplines is that virtuosity does not sell tickets. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's kind of what it is, right? Uh, I mean, I was just in Japan and like almost every single food stall is something special. And, oh yeah. And, you know, but, but like, you know, you could just make, you could just, you know, as a, as a student of food, every time I ate was like an education. And yet like, it's not, I don't know if it would make great TV. Isn't, I mean, I think about that with whatever profession, like mm -hmm. it, the hard work of it is not very sexy. 
when it comes to anything. And so TV glamorizes things. And the perception, I think, from people who consume food and people who are, think they're, they want to make food for a living, it becomes very unrealistic and skewed. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit the kind of pandemic aside, obviously like a big thing in this, but it's a little bit, you know, some of the, um, I would say staffing issues that the business has right now is that you basically had this arc since we're talking about it. You had this arc where no one was in the profession as far as, you know, and, and historically like in 19, I think it was 76, 75, please don't quote me on that. The department of labor changed uh, its classification for chefs from being a domestic to a professional um, oh. category. And that was a huge thing that had changed with the unions and changed kind of like in hotel structure. And so then, and then you, you went into the eighties with what started happening in restaurants when you had, you know, students, young people that went to Europe and kind of bring that back. And then you had, you know, this glamorization over fetishization and over glamorization of this stuff that happened uh, in, you know, the night, which was great for the, which was, great for the business and great for the profession, right? Because it, it legitimized the role. Uh, then you had a lot of, you know, people realizing that either they were more like white collar kids going into the the job. The blue collar job. You know, job. And like in, in yeah. going to this job thinking because there was, you know, all this media attention around it and all of a sudden there's like TV shows and then like, oh, guys with tattoos are doing this stuff and like women are doing this stuff and it's like... Um, became much more broader than the kind of job was before. Uh, but the job is still the job. The work is still the work. It's never not going to be the work until they're robots. Um, and Which, how much money are you investing in robots right now? I, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, you have 15 restaurants. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of joking, but also, and that's, I think that's, that's a good segue into the fact of like, you know, you're here, we're talking casually about cooking, but I mean, sure. you're running an empire. I mean, you have, how many restaurants do you have now? 15? Uh, 20. 20 restaurants, and yeah. it doesn't sound like you're stopping. So all these, you know, touch points of, like, the industry and the changes, I mean, like, you're you're dealing with it on a, on a 20 scale. I mean, I have one restaurant. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, when you seriously think about the workforce moving forward post-pandemic, I mean, you're thinking about robots? Is that? I'm No, I'm, I'm being much more careful about what we're saying yes to. Yeah. Um, even... Um, um, cause it's just, there's, there's been a lot of things that have happened, um, that have kind of like changed it and, um, you can't, there's no blaming like one thing. You just like, it's just, it's a social construct, right? Cause of things out of our control. Totally. Um, I will say though, what I was saying before is that that kind of like media arc, and I say, you know, that has to do with print magazine, TV and everything from when it was basically just gourmet magazine and cooks in 1988 or whatever. And then to, you know, peak 2005, call it. Um, yeah, is it just like a good amount of people that went into the business, like, it's, the business is the business, you yeah. know? You still have to close, you have to take out the trash, you have to order, you have to, like, run HR, you have to, like, you do have to not lose money all the time. Uh, you have to, you know, besides the art of cooking, right? The art, the art of cooking and the business, that's, that's the fun part, right? <laughs> And if you can get to do that 25% of the time, then that's pretty good, you know? But all the other stuff has to kind of support it. So I think there was a lot of attrition and um, getting closer to 
uh, pandemic, and then pandemic just lit a fuse on that for probably a lot of industries, right? Um, yeah, but, but we're still rolling. We have I have great great teams, and, and we have uh, people would kill for what you know what you know the, you know our, our our group and our teams we have around us. And uh, um, do you get to cook that much? Uh, I have to, I make schedule myself to do oh. that. Meaning like, you know, like the, you know, we're doing a podcast now, but, um, you know, we're, we'll do, you know, if it's menu development, new product, you know, development, if it's just kind of, I actually have on my calendar next Wednesday, I can tell you what it says. Cause I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it today. It says blood and guts at Lafayette. <laughs> blood and guts is my, um, Lafayette's our, um, one of our, is our French, um, brasserie. And uh, that's means that I'm gonna go in and um, like cook up, cook some tripe and sweetbreads and yeah, kind of like those kind of like dishes with that. And we, and we might because we, we're during the winter we'll put one or two of those kind of like classic dishes on the menu um, or run them as specials a little bit. But I want to go in and do them. Is so. that something that's already listed right now? Like it's already promoted. You know it's happening, or is it just like a night of you just announce it? No, no, that's just something I put in my calendar to make sure that I I I. I don't have anything to do after like one o'clock. I'm going to go in, put on whites and make some tripe and some sweet gotcha. breads. And like, so that's, not, more, that's it's, almost more for you than it is for anybody it's, else. It's not an event. It's yeah. just kind of like. It's just what you're going to do. Scheduled. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's, basically it just depends. Every day is different really. You know, mm-hmm. but, we don't, we don't do so many eventy things and you know, these days, but it's just really concentrating on the restaurants, concentrating on the teams, customers. Now you're yeah. in, you're in New York. You're obviously here in Detroit yeah. at San Morello, fantastic place. I feel like I've eaten at most of the offerings you have there. Um, and then where are you in Nashville? Where Where are you heading? Uh, we opened in two restaurants in Nashville this year. Okay, uh, in a W hotel there, and then. Um, but I'm, yeah, mostly concentrating on on New York. Um, our next, our things after that are in New York. The next three years. Yeah, yeah, because we're mostly downtown Manhattan. You know, me and my two partners, we we live in Soho, in, in Chelsea. We walk to all the restaurants, but we maybe look to do some other things in New York. Yeah, has running a restaurant in New York. You know, if you look at the last, obviously, what is this? Twenty? No, third, twenty-five years you've been cooking in New York. Like thirty, how, thirty actually, years. Yeah, is running a restaurant harder nowadays than it was, or is it, or is it easier? Is it both? Because obviously you have more resources you have, you know, it's a global economy. You can get, you can get things flown to you. Oh, as opposed to like in Detroit. I think, well, I think like, like, I think, no, in New York was, is is it easier now than it was then? Or is it, is it hard now? Uh, well, there, there are, it's hard, it's hard to say because I mean, New York's a very different place. Um, you know, there's, um, neighborhoods that didn't have a lot of activity now have a lot of activity, meaning like, you know, Williamsburg, was a Polish and Italian neighborhood on the other side of the river. And now it's hotels and busy and restaurants and all different kind of stuff. So there's a lot more restaurants, you know, I would say when I moved to New York in 90, 90, 91, um, if you wanted caviar, porcini, sea urchin, um, you know, stuff like that, there were certain restaurants you went to for that type of thing. Right. You went to, and you mostly had a, a L-E or a L-A in front of them. You went to Le Cirque, you went to La Pavillon, you went to like, yeah, that's where you went. Uh, and there was one Italian restaurant, San Domenico, where I was working. Uh, like when I say one Italian restaurant, I mean like higher end Italian restaurant. Uh, you know, now you can 
you can go to a wine bar in Fort Greene in, in, in Brooklyn and, you know, get some pretty nice sea urchin, you know? And uh, you can, it's not just like super high, which is still a little strange to me uh, in a way. Um, yeah, like like a place like La Conde Verde, which is, I would call like a mid-level Italian, super busy, boisterous. Yeah, you would never, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have seen 30 years ago like porcini on that menu. Right. But we'll bring in like West Coast porcini and we'll do a pasta dish with it and we can sell it for $50 and people will buy it. Yeah, I think <laughs> a that's, lot of people will buy it. That's kind of the, um, one of the, the interesting byproducts of like, you know, some of the groaning about food media being out of control is also like you have a really dynamic, educated audience now that knows it's porcini time and they'll go out and spend the money. And I think at least well, in the it's Midwest, also, you know, the, and that's, Again, back, you know, then, you know, if you were serious about food or you wanted to like, you were wanted to be a better chef, there really, it was only like, New York was the only place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a couple of places in Chicago, couple, like one or two places in San Francisco, um, in the States. Uh, and if you wanted to go to school, there was only like two places to go if you were serious. Um, now, there's almost in every major and secondary and third market, there's like some pretty good chefs around, like <laughs> having like pretty good restaurants and, you know, like there's a cool kid everywhere fermenting something or like, you know, like, and they can, uh, so you don't, if you're like a young person that's interested in this work, you don't necessarily need to go to New York. I tell people they should go to Asia and Europe for sure, just to like culturally understand you know, it's not so important these days to go and stage, I don't think, especially if you're working at a couple of good restaurants in the States. If you want to and you can, amazing experience for sure. Right. But, you know, before you, like, have a reference on how to make gnocchi, just because the restaurant, the cool restaurant you worked wherever, New York or Detroit or Miami, were like, made gnocchi, doesn't necessarily give you the full context to understand what it is. And you probably should, like, go to Emilia Romagna in Southern Lombardy and like eat some gnocchi. So you know where it comes from, understand the topography, understand, you know, how it smells there. <laughs> like, you know, what's the, you know, why I shouldn't, you know, do certain things with it. Right. Same thing if you're gonna make uh, a spring roll, you know, or, you know, you shouldn't open up a Vietnamese restaurant unless you, you know, at least go to, you know, Vietnam and understand just culturally between the food in the north the food in the south right. what the city food's like what the country food's like why i think even way, even so. in, you know obviously it's interesting because you have a detroit restaurant restaurants and you have new york restaurants mm-hmm. you know, to me one thing that i talk to my staff a lot about is like midwest is wonderful for a million reasons but one of the things is we don't have the diversity of restaurants or even food scenes or even cultures represented via restaurants so you're you're educating your diners on certain techniques and dishes and ingredients Relatively frequently, whereas I think the perk of, of New York that from my perspective is like you have a, a, a demographic in the dining scene that understands cuisine, flavors, dishes. You can get away with a lot of uh, – I noticed that when I was younger meeting chefs from like from New York or cooking against them, you know, Top Chef, et cetera, sure. was they understand like, oh, this is Burmese. Oh, this is – you know, this is – you know, for, uh, South, this is a Southeast Asian flavor specifically. This is something you'll find more in South, you know, America. Like there's things where I had to be like, wait a second, where is this again? And I needed to research more ingredients because I was not exposed to them here. I think I didn't know what yuzu kosher was until I was like 30. Right. You know, now you see it on, you know, you see it on pop-ups from a 19-year-old kid. So I think that it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the chicken and the egg. It's like 
New York has such a great food scene, so therefore it births even better. Yeah, I mean in L.A., I've been L.A. had a great food scene. Also, I mean it's expanded a lot. Also, um, you know, a lot, not just high end food, right? Um, so yeah, if you're exposed to that, it's a very different, like, you know, depth than like New York has. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's like you think about your Mexican cuisine or your Korean cuisine. Like, yeah, you know, sure. It's, you, yeah. You grow up with a real understanding of it. Yeah. I grew up in Cleveland. So, <laughs> you know, I similar, similar situation to here. We got nothing. <laughs> we, got well, per, got, we got pierogies. Well, who, uh, uh, uh Angie from Don Angie's got, from we, Cleveland we got, too. We, we got, we got pierogies. That's what we got. Have you been, <laughs> you've been to Don Angie? Yeah, yeah, they I do know. a great job. That's yeah, no, yeah, who is producing great Italian chefs out of Cleveland? Is that the thing now? I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't say that I became a great Italian chef, but I, but I, I left. I, Someone, I, 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 I left when I was eighteen. So some would say that maybe yeah. maybe Cleveland's not responsible for it, yeah. but you know they they birthed you. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I like being in Detroit. It's it's very because. Um, it's very different. There's a good there's a good spirit here. It's very it's very it even though like I actually. My first real chef I worked for is only like an hour and a half from here. Uh, he's in Vermilion, Ohio. And so, um, you know, I was started cooking when I was 14. I started, actually started washing dishes when I was 14 and then like did what everyone else did. And all of a sudden I'm on the line. And then um, I went to go work for like my, yeah, my first like real chef who's got a restaurant in Vermilion, Ohio called Chez Francois. And he was getting his fish from Brown Trading. This is 1987, six, seven. He was Lee Jones's first customer, celebrity farmer or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, Hudson is the next right. town over. And so before they started shipping everything, he was like selling to local no restaurants. No kidding, that's yeah. a fun fact. Um, that's why Lee's got a bean named after me. Because <laughs> we were like his one of his like first customers when I was a that's kid there. Chef's Garden. Yeah. It's like, it's like the like, boutique he was vegetable a, guy. He, he was a soybean farmer in Hudson, Ohio that started to do... Um, like farmer markets, but started to do like boutique vegetable type stuff. Uh -huh. And then they really amped up and they started shipping. Um, so he, interesting enough, his big market is, is China now. I was going to say he's international. Yeah. I mean, they ship internationally a lot. Yeah. I mean, that, that eerie, cool. that eerie like soil field, the Lake Erie is, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. You go down there and all their hoop houses, it's a beautiful operation. I feel like more people should go down there. Even if you're from Michigan, like just, if you're not even uh a chef, you should go see. Yeah, what it's got going it's on. Uh, you know it's you 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 pay for it obviously. So he, a lot of his customers they're like, you know, he's like the intercontinental Hong Kong yeah, and the, like you know yeah. Oriental and everything. But the best white asparagus in my life I've ever had, even better than like I love the French thick ones from the Londe and all that. But his white asparagus that they do there is spectacular. We use it all the time. Yeah, um, when it comes in season, like really really sweet. Um, you can also like use all of it. It yeah, doesn't I, get like string in the end. Like I don't know what their secret is, but it's really good. Yeah, Andy's such a sweet guy. Yeah, they do a lot of dinners down there. You should like it. You should that look it up. Cool. And, and anybody else that's listening, they do they do guest facing dinners. You know, with with uh, you know featuring chefs from around the country. It's a it's a really cool chef's garden here in Ohio. Yeah. But, it's and, exciting to hear you guys get excited still about food. Like to say that's my favorite thing when you do so much of it and taste so many things. Um, would you guys, like, so you're a little bit, you've been doing this a little bit longer than you've been doing this. Whenever I talk to musicians, I always ask them if they wish they had been born in a different period of time mm. in relation to music. And I wonder if that applies to food. Um, it was certainly a different time when you started than it is now. 
different time when you started than when he started. I think about like food and what food would have been like before you, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years before, 30 years before you decided to become a chef. And would that have been an interesting time or not so much um, to make food and to be creative with food? I just get curious about what that looked like and what that would feel well, like. Well, I mean, even though we started this conversation kind of like almost complaining a little bit uh, <laughs> or just have not complaining, I guess having a... Bemoaning something. No, having a more seasoned outlook on the current... <laughs> Nicely uh, done. It's like, it's like, not complaining, not complaining at all because um, um, the food part, it, just to touch on the, in the, the first thing is the food part, and I tell that to some of my younger cooks and like sous chefs so it's like if you still don't love the work part there are a lot other you, there's like easier ways to like I've heard to like do it make a living right <laughs> I, I people do this influence thing they make videos <laughs> they like this thing coding stuff I don't know I've, I've heard there are other ways right, right. so um, if you don't love the work yeah you should definitely go do something else um, for sure um, but to answer the other other question, which is interesting, it's it's probably the most glorious time for restaurants and and like food culture. I think probably from late eighties to yeah mid two thousands for sure, because there was you went basically went from zero to a hundred, um, uh, which is a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my. Uncle Tilio used to bring back arugula seeds every year from Friuli. My family's from Friuli, Italy. And there was no arugula in South Cleveland or like in, <laughs> you know, in when, when we were kids. Um, and he would he would bring back seeds because you couldn't even get them. There was like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sell them. So we'd like, quote unquote, smuggle, you know, the, the, the real um, arugula back every year and we would have like the arugula. Um, so that's like, I don't know, 1979. Now you're going to really get it like not even whole foods. I'm talking about like, oh, yeah. I don't know, key foods or I don't know what the, <laughs> like the, like the, you know, the yeah, like Aldi. <laughs> yeah. Aldi yeah. you can get, you can get arugula. So even at a product level, it's like come so far, you know, in this, um, because it's come so far in some ways and then some ways it hasn't, but it really has like evolved, you know, a lot. And now with social, it's like, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's evolved even further for better or worse. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, even though, yeah, we started with this kind of like seasoned outlook culturally where we are, it's been a glorious time for food culture, I think, even though it's very fun, it's weird now. Well, it's taken on a lot of changes, but in terms yeah. of, the, the access to food, like the arugula, there's no access to yeah, it. Sure. The access to food has changed a lot in the last 40 years. And you were working through that whole thing. So you worked through that whole evolution, really. Yeah. This yeah. is That's, pretty interesting. That, I time. think you, 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 you do kind of represent the, a great like historical moment in food because you're kind of like, you know, pre food network, like your career, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, before, you know, these le- legendary chefs like Danielle, I mean, who you obviously worked for when he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was, he didn't have, Danielle was in a restaurant then, right? Oh, no, yeah, he did, they had, um, Danielle was a restaurant, yeah. I, I worked for Danielle when he hired me to be the chef at Cafe Blue. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Because where, where did he, where did he get his start? Oh, he was at Le Cirque. Le Cirque, But right. I, and I was, 
big that was an executive sous chef for two years at Le Cirque, but that was after he after was there. Daniel. Okay, yeah. But to, to like watch the timelines, you know, to, yeah, sometimes. to watch some of these like you know legends come into their own mm -hmm. pre social media, pre food network, and so, and then the, but then also like you said, you're on Iron Chef. You know, you're kind of you're also. I feel like you benefited from these, you know changes that came out but you also got 100 yeah from the beginning you know you got the benefit from them not being victim to them in early in your career like nowadays you know if you're from midland michigan you go on the internet you can watch what renee redzepi is doing and you can literally buy a ticket and go fly out and stage there like i you know i had to like i mean i remember me i was like reading larousse gastronomique in high school and then like you know i would get one used charlie trotter cookbook and like wouldn't even understand what was going on in it when I, I I lived in Italy and worked in Italy for a year, and I also lived and worked in France for a year and in the '90s and uh, two separate times, and I have uh, my faxes that I hand wrote in Italian and then in French to try to get stashes. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> because, so they were, they were, stashes. Yeah, they were fa <laughs> faxes back. So I have faxes back from Michel Bra and faxes back from Alain Fassard and faxes like, and you had and I had to learn how to write French and learn how to write Italian to do it because there was no, there was no translator or whatever. So I took Italian, yeah, you know, and then to go like live and work there. And then, yeah, it's pretty, pretty Did wild. Did you stage at Michelle Braz? Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. A, that's actually, that's, I did not know that. That's one. How was that? Yeah. Uh, it was cool. I was only there for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mostly worked at, at our, at our page and then a kind of a, a bistro in Nice. Um, but I did some like stages here and there to kind of yeah. pepper it around. Um, that's pretty cool. Where now when you do a stage like that, is that something where you're like the hype going in is so huge that you're just there and you're just kind of doing some kitchen work and then you leave and you're kind of like, you know, is that like every experience is different, you know, yeah. like there's, uh, um, yeah, every, I, I don't, it's actually interesting that we're having this conversation because I was, I was just in France a couple of weeks ago and I was in Italy in June and I, the Italy trip, I brought six of my chefs to Italy for 10 days. That's See, nice. you should come and work for me. <laughs> come and work for Andrew Carlin. You go to Italy every day for 10 days. We were seven of us. I brought some, uh, my, uh, my uh, Josh Nindel's, um our beverage director. He's a master psalm. He came to uh, my service director and then a, a bunch of chefs. And uh, but we started. We flew to Nice and we kicked off our ten days at Louis Kahn's, which is Alain Ducasse's um, flagship in Monaco. And I'm a spoiled jerk, so I've been there like three or four times already. So, anyways, in previously, that was a restaurant where it was impossible to even go work there for free. They wouldn't even want to talk to you. I was able to do it because I was working in this place in Nice and I had a connection and. They're, yeah, they wouldn't even want to talk to you. I I tried working at Gerard Day in Switzerland, um, which is now is is uh, Hotel de Ville, and Frank Giovanni is the chef there. Um, arguably, the best restaurant in the world. I know Noma is often said to be, but I think Chrissier actually is. And anyways, yeah, I remember going there, and they they wouldn't even like open the door. They were like, <laughs> no, really? sorry, yeah. So this is like they would didn't even would talk to you. Well, for a number of reasons. One being you're American. Be American, yeah. Um, anyways, so we're having lunch at Ducasse, um, which is spectacular, and I, I know the pastry chef there, uh, Sandro McKilly, and we went in the kitchen afterwards just to say hi, and it was they were amazing, so so nice and everything. And the first words out of his mouth was, "Do you know anyone that wants to work?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> 
So they're having they're having problems in in France also. But that's I mean, isn't that yeah. that's a sobering moment in your career to be like, look at this. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and yeah, I have a friend in Japan who's got a couple of restaurants in outside Tokyo or in Tokyo, and uh, they're having the same problem there too. So it really is a worldwide kind of. I mean, worldwide. I don't know if it's. I no, I think it's fair. I think you can say worldwide. For, I, I think it's, well, we'll call it first world problem. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. This is such a maybe cliche question, but I have to ask both of you, I think you and I have talked about this before, but some people say that there was a meal that they will never forget because hmm. it was so spectacular and maybe it was the time in their life or what was going on or what it was or whatever. Do you guys have a meal that you'll never forget and how you felt about it? Do you want to say like restaurant meal or do you don't, it's a completely open? It's a completely open question. I feel like you're in a restaurant. Uh, your mind, our minds are in restaurant land right now. Okay, I guess, but, <laughs> but, I guess you can stay there. We can say restaurant yeah, sure. and then non restaurant meal. I mean, for me, it was like it's like a it's like a it's a battle of like firsts, right? Because like your first, incredibly, if you're young enough and you're getting a tasting menu at the right age, it's it's a formative experience. Mm -hmm. There's only so, and then every now and then you have such a great tasting menu that it's like newly formative because maybe it lines up with where you want to be or where you're at or what you're thinking about. But I mean, I, I ate at Charlie Trotter's in my, he was like 21. And that was like the first time I had some of those experiences. And, the, and then he does the tour and he appears out of nowhere and the servers know everything about, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Trotter's is definitely a, you know, and to me it was like a Midwest restaurant. So it was like, that was a tangible oh, experience. Right. It wasn't like you're in far, some faraway land. So yeah, for me it was, it was Trotter's and, you know, in the early 2000s and that, yeah, that was a, if food was obviously wonderful, but it was, I think like, I mean, John Shields was there at the time and, and you know, Matthias and Bill Kim. I mean, he had a, you know, he had a legendary lineup of Sue's and CDC's and such, but yeah. So for me, it was, that was the formative experience of like, wait a second, you can get away with this in the Midwest. Mm. Yeah. So you think it's, it's, yes, yeah, sometimes, the, sometimes the best meals aren't in restaurants, right? right. You know, they're kind of like, it, yeah, your grandma, so many, you know, so many other things like, can, but you know, because we are keeping our restaurants, and it is interesting what you said about like having something a little bit younger in your career, where you become like more informed later, or less jaded, right. or kind of like you know something becomes old hat, or you've seen a lot of things a lot of times. So it kind of, um, we, you know, it's such a funny question, right? Um, again, excuse me, because I'm a spoiled jerk, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know the there's a there's a there's a there's a restaurant because um, there could be a, there's could be a couple, you know, answers to this. But there was um, I was catering a wedding for uh, a very good friend of mine in Italy because um, a couple times I've done that for friends and um, doing this wedding. And uh, Faith Willinger is um, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a food writer in Italy who was one of the first Americans. She married an Italian 
guy and she lives in Florence and she's probably the most connected out of anybody to the true like ecosystem in Italy. Um, knows all the makers, all the chefs, all the wine. Like she knows, she's introduced a lot of, of those people to like the broader uh, world. And uh, she calls me when I'm there and she's like, hey, I hear you here. You know, and I was like, yeah. And, you know, she goes, what are you doing tomorrow night? I was like, well, um, I'm getting ready for this wedding on Saturday. It was like Thursday. <laughs> she goes, or no, it was, it was Wednesday. She goes, no, you're not. You're coming with us. And I was like, I can't. She goes, you have to come with us. She goes, we're going to, it's going to be a great night. So she tells me where it is. It's like three hours away. I'm like, you know, it sounds like I should go. <laughs> so me and my wife jump in the car. We're like, we leave at like three and we get to um, Fontanella Emilia-Romagna, which is outside Parma. And there's a restaurant there called Osteria Divan. Uh, and we had, the, and she made, arranged this dinner at this place uh, with um, uh, uh, R.W. Apple, who was um, a very famous writer from the Times, um, kind of like um, a um, Walter Cronkite type of character. So 60s through, this is, I don't know, uh, 2002 kind of like, era kind of guy, but a huge gourmand, traveled all over the world, excellent white writer. And there was some Italian winemakers. It was just, it was a cast of characters. And it was just, uh, it you know, meal started at eight and we probably finished up at 2.30. And this guy who has this restaurant, and his wife's an amazing cook. She definitely stays in the kitchen. And he uh, is a character for sure. And again, so connected in like layers that you'll never... <laughs> like hit in Italy. And so he has a crazy wine cellar and food spectacular with a lot of things that you normally wouldn't see on menus. And it's a company plus wines that you'll never drink. Plus this kind of like very layered, it was probably was amazing, amazing evening. And the also probably the pressure of like knowing you have to cater this wedding. You're, you're basically, you're <laughs> like, you're, you're doing Russian roulette a little bit. And I drove home after. Yeah. So as I, we left after that. We drove, we drove back three hours. There's a so danger. Like, There's a da that, That's the missing element that you can't get it at just any old meal. Definitely. You're risking a, <laughs> a, a, you're risking a failed wedding catering job. Yeah. yeah in another, in, in another country for 120, 120 people. Yeah. Uh, but spectacular evening. And uh, him and I are, we're still friends. Um, what did you he, know, all these, all these years later. Uh, and I have, I have uh, actually Carni Mari, which is um, opened out of this uh, a kind of Italian chop house thing uh, last year, and I have a dish on there that's named after him because it's like, um, you know, we we go every year. I always bring people to go because it's not any list, it's not on any like, it's not in Michelin, it's not on like anyone's celebrity you know list or whatever. That's the best. And uh, this so passionate about what they do and. Um, amazing place, Austria, Divani. Yeah, is there any, was, was there anything? What did you eat? Like that? Yeah, like, was there any night? singular bites that were you like? This is um, you steal. You know, they always kind of do different things all the time. Um, but they, there's, you know, there's there's some specialties there in that kind of like region. It's, it's called the Bassa, which is like outside of Parma, where the the Po River kind of goes towards the Adriatic, and it's farmland um, and very flat. Um, but it's right next to the DOP for Parmigiano Reggiano. And uh, they have these kind of like little scarty um, scraps of Parmesan cheese curds. So when they cut the cheese to put it inside the mold, they kind of like cut these curds off and they kind of just fry them. 
No. It's basically fried cheese curds, but it's yeah. fried Parmesan cheese curds. Yeah. And they put like, you know, chestnut honey on it or whatever. And I don't know. You don't get that anywhere else, no, right? No, that's, that's, like, that's a great answer. Because, you know? <laughs> that, yeah, that's, uh, that's something you can't. So it's something you can totally You can't understand. put that on your menu. <laughs> yeah, you can't. That's, you know, um, yeah, you know, and well, I kind of want to like, because I feel like this is this could be a five-hour podcast if we were to start. I mean, this is romantic. I'm like, I want to go to Italy so bad right now. now You're also making me nostalgic for Trotters because I had a, some... I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I you had, had epic some, meals there. Everyone did. I had some experience. Yeah, I staged there in 91. Now, yeah. did you positive experience? Well, yeah, he, uh, you know, they were basically like, you know, then they were, they were, they were, the idea of like master American chefs was a very new concept. Right. Then. Basically, had David Boulay, who just got four stars from the New York Times, the first American ever get it, uh, and and Trotter, right, who kind of was just coming into this, you know, again with this kind of media wave of like these guys are doing yeah, this and thing, and not a traditional path at all. He's and uh, and. Uh, so there was two kind of exciting times and I was sort of like working for free at Boulay and I wanted to go, you know, check out Trotter and um, yeah, that's was exciting. The answers to the question before is like, yeah, this is, that was the, th that was the start of this time for American right. gastronomy, yeah. I think. Yeah. I feel yeah. like what, you know, I traveled in my young twenties to did some stage, no, nothing, nothing in higher end restaurants, but like, you know, in Auvergne, France and did some staging and like the only American chef they knew was Thomas Keller. That was a deal. <laughs> Even this is like 2006. Yeah. 2007, and then the only chefs they knew were, you know, it still was like they don't they don't register American. It's no, like us, no, it's no, like us paying attention to like Swedish basketball players. It's just like the average person doesn't know the NBA outside of you know. Basketball no, no, yeah, yeah, no. That's kind of how European chefs view cooking. Is kind of like nowadays a little bit. Granak it's definitely broke through. You know, a few. Other well, chefs there's that, there's yeah, I would we'll call it the post hipster movement has generated its own kind of like yeah, its own scene, um, its own like scene that's deeped in you know that's a that's a that's a new different thing right than kind of like the old man stuff we're talking about yeah now uh to to i want to get a little informal what's your favorite slice in new york um my you know the um, my favorite slice in new york i gotta tell you well i i lived um i just moved to chelsea um which i hope is my last new york city move ever um but then finally moved in and uh there's this uh I don't even know the name of it because I don't even know if it has a name. It's like, it's like, pizza shop, and he he is an Italian. He's um, he's Albanian, like a lot of the slice guys are, um, even though they try to pretend they're Italian and the market themselves Italian. And he's there every day. He owns the shop. Um, he it's you would walk past it. You wouldn't even like glance twice at it. Well, what's the street? And it's just it's Sixteenth and Seventh. Okay. Yeah, it's Seventh Avenue and Sixteenth Street, and it's a damn good slice. Pizza shop and in Chelsea. Yeah, right, right there on the corner, and he's there every night. He's there during the day. Yesterday, when I was walking home, he was like smoking a cigarette outside, and I've been there like six, seven times now. <laughs> and he, uh, he like you know he recognized me. Yeah. Meaning like, hey, welcome. You know, it's like, you know, knew that I love the pepperoni slice and I love the Bianca. Uh, and I'll only give him a shout out because it's just, it's just, it's just proper. Yeah. It's not, again, it's not any lists. It's not like, you know, there's not some, you know, pseudo Italian American internet celebrity in front right. of it saying this is like the best slice. Um, it's not some like fresh faced kid from NYU that just got to town who's <laughs> telling you this is the best slice. It's just like, it's just a great slice. It's just great. It's classic. <laughs> 
it's like no pretense and it's kind of what it should be. Yeah. So a question I ask, uh, another question I like to ask people who are creative and you are a creative person for, for a living. I'll ask them what they would have done if they hadn't done what they're doing. And I suspect yours would have been a musician. Well, yeah. You were going to go to Berkeley, right? Yeah, I was going to go to Berkeley School of Music or... I guess before, I mean, I always kind of played music and loved music. Um, I kind of wanted to be, even though I had bands, whatever, I wanted to be a music producer um, and get, because like, I love production also. Mm -hmm. um, what did you play? Um, guitar and keyboards. Uh, and then when I moved to New York, I fell in love with hip hop and did production, that production for a long time. Um, but I have a studio in my house. I built a, like a, $200,000 studio at my wow. house. Uh, and I just- I didn't know that about you. I just, I don't know if I'm good or not. I just make music for myself. Like I have walls of equipment and everything. And you know- You've never uh, put anything out? Like like you don't pass out CDs to people? No, I don't mix. I don't know. All right. No, no. I just kind of like, I just do that for myself really. But before that, I wanted to be, um, there's two things. I really wanted to be uh, a uh, Formula One pitch crew chief. <laughs> <laughs> you know the guys that like working the and uh, and I I'm marine biologist, but then marine biologist I think was just because I just pictured this lifestyle of like being on a boat and like girls in bikinis and like <laughs> cool fish and like I don't know. I think it was more of an aesthetic thing than science. Yeah. So I think that's when I look back at it. That was it probably more like a Key West bartender. Than <laughs> yeah, no, it was, no, it was like I was. I pictured like the Jacques Cousteau character, but yeah. it was also James Bond and. I, I didn't know what they did, but it sounded. It looked really. and James Bond. Yeah. Like it looked, yeah, yeah. Well, like it, it a, looked yeah. really appealing. That's you know? easy to do. It looked really appealing. <laughs> Although you know what, being the head of a pit crew is almost like I would imagine. That's very. That's more. Yeah, a little bit. Like, that's chef-like. That sounds chef-like. The the marine biologist, not so much. Well, yeah, and I say I say Formula <laughs> One, but it was probably like because I grew up. You know, I grew up in in Ohio. My my we were. In, I played sports, but my dad was like not a sports dad. They probably demolition uh, derby is more like. Yeah, he was. They, he was like. He, he calls it the stick and ball crowd, and he doesn't. He just doesn't care. Um, but we grew up with cars and in racing, you know, uh, mostly dirt track racing, yeah. and uh, which looks like a lot of fun. Oh yeah, yeah, so much fun. It looks like a lot of fun. What are the similarities between making food and making music? Um. Well, the the artistic part is, you know, you kind of like building a song is the same thing as building a a dish or a sauce. It's a similar kind of process, I think, at least for me. Um, I think it's interesting business-wise. I think they're like kind of similar, meaning like they're both fucked. Um, uh, you don't have to edit that. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, no, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of similar. You have to, and if you have a band, which you don't necessarily need a band anymore, but you, if you're playing live, you, um, you need to lead in the same way. You kind of deal with those personalities. Yeah. See, we need more robots. You know, people have to show up. Yeah. You know, to show up for the gig. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, so yeah, there are. It's and there, there's a certain back of the house production. I think that's very similar to them, mm -hmm. um, you know, meaning like to put on the show, it like, it takes, it's never, you know, there's always, it's, there's always some chaos involved in like putting on the show. Um, I think that, that way is very similar, yeah. But 
the, the advantage that music has over food is that you can work on a song, you can go in the studio and spend like 16 days working on like whatever and cut it and it's finished. Mm-hmm. And you can you can listen to it forever. Like the disadvantage that we have as chefs running restaurants is that yeah, one shot. <laughs> but also the, the 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 dynamics change like it's a constant dynamic change. Uh, you know, the the customer changes, the mood changes, the table changes. You know, table thirty one. They're having the time of their life. Table 32 hates her guts. And not because of anything you did, because, you know, she brought her mom and she hates her mom. And like, there's nothing you can do. You're like, it's good. Everything's going to taste bad or like whatever, you know, all those kind of like. the restaurant. Yeah. All those, all those kind of like, in, in, you know, the, the fish comes late. The cook doesn't I'll, show I'll up, be on your like, control. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be on your control. So that, that, that kind of like dynamic um, thing. The other thing too, though, that I, that I love is that, Music, there's nothing tangible about it once it's done. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's that. And but food is smell and taste and touch and all these other senses yeah, it's surround all, it's that. Only tangible. You know, but music or, is in its own place. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's poetry. Yeah, I, like I mean, that. that's, no, it's, that's, that's yeah, poetry. No. Yeah, I never thought about that. I mean, that's why you know. I think well, I think it's it's very it's very specific point of view for you know. For you, I think that's that's something. It's interesting. You're creating something so tangible, and then your other love is something so intangible. And there's also it's a little masochistic too, right? Because the you make your thing, whatever it is, either like make it to give it to some friends and family, meaning like you're like here's my soup, yeah, or like you know here's my new here's my here's, dove stuff, here's, here's my new here, yeah here's my new beat, and it's like all of a sudden you have to deal with like audience reaction like immediately, you know. <laughs> So that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. But you're putting yourself out there on both of those things. Yeah. yeah it's you're like, it's like, you. I mean, it's you both things. That's why I don't put any music out. As far as we know, you're good at cooking. The music, not yeah, 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 who no, knows? No. It's, it's doing its turn. The basement, Although, the basement tapes might come out one day. You can't, I'll say, you should send me some music. I'll listen to it. Do you play anything? No, not at all. I mean, no. I think saxophone in middle school, but I got made fun of walking home from school for carrying a saxophone. And I, 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 I chickened out, man. I was already like, you know, poor kid in a Catholic school and just like, I just couldn't handle it. I think some, yeah, some older kids just like were just roasting me and I was like, screw this. I wish I would have stuck with it. I always joke that like when you're in middle school playing the saxophone, you're never going to get a girl to look at you. If you're 35 and you can like, you're wailing on the saxophone, like you can take your Oh, pick. you don't even have to get that old. Yeah, it's true. But you know what I'm saying? Like if I was good at the saxophone right now, like, yeah. oh my God, what a conversation piece. I feel the saxophone is not in the forefront as it was if you listen to like, it's true. It definitely if, had if, its heyday. If, yeah, if you listen to like any like nineteen eighty two to nineteen eighty, everyone has sex music. Player. It was sex everywhere. Everyone, it was everywhere. There was always some solo or outro or intro or breakdown yeah, even, or whatever. Even like, I'll forget how many songs had a sex. I'll be like listening to a song and I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. There's a saxophone solo in this. Yeah, yeah. you're totally right. They don't, you don't even have guitar solos anymore. You don't even need much. it. No, no, no. You just yeah, give me the saxophone. Very, very, very. Uh, you know, my. Uh, I don't. I don't have. We don't have kids, but uh, I do have a lot of nieces and nephews. And uh, my uh, uh, my middle one of my middle nephews, uh, he big hip hop fan. I took him to J Cole a couple months ago. Um, he freaked out because it was like his first concert, and it was a surprise. And uh, anyway, so he's out at my house over the summer. And uh, you know, it was like middle afternoon. I was playing music downstairs. He was bored outside. He came in downstairs, and I was I 
wasn't playing any beat-based stuff or electronic-based stuff. I was playing the guitar and uh, kind of like shredding, you know? And uh, he came down and he sat down and he was like watching me for a little bit. And he said, Uncle Andrew, can you go play like the drum machine stuff and not play the guitar anymore? <laughs> totally and I felt, I felt, it was like, I felt my, my grandfather played the saw. Mm-hmm. And it was the worst thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> it was like the most sad. It was like the most, ha- it was, it was such a horrible sound. And he used to play it like with the bow and the thing. Mm-hmm. And, and which is amazing because if you try it now, like it's like what an amazing skill. Um, and I felt like it was, I was, that was me. And I was looking you're, at my grandfather playing the saw. <laughs> and I'm like, that's uh, a, oh, that was rough. That's was hilarious. Like, <laughs> that's. That's that's rich. <laughs> do you have a do you have a favorite Detroit um, band, artist, rapper? Is there anybody that from when you think Detroit music? Where you? Uh, you know, I just finished uh, that book on Dilla um, about um, um, basically like how he um, basically changed time in in music, and so he was able. To, um, uh, I mean, this is like some pretty geeky stuff, but he. Uh, uh, he was one of the one of the first people um, um, to kind of like change time uh, and experiment with changing time. So you know where you would have like you know like boom bap hip hop before that would be like do 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 ba do 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 ba. He would like change those markers at like you know the bass you know the bass would hit like not on not on two and four but like on two and a half you know and then it would be like and like that kind of thing. So yeah. it was a whole book on that. And his life also. So, um, but yeah, I was, I mean, I love, I mean, it's like a little bit cliche also, but it, I would say Dilla's probably. No, like I, think my I think that's a, it's yeah. a very quality answer for a, um, a hip hop head, I just say. Yeah, no, I like uh, the, the good thing about Detroit is that there's a, there's a, there's some, there's a good cultural base here. Um, and I've made some good friends like outside the restaurant um, kind of circle in Detroit that are, you know, they're on more on the artistic scene. Which is cool, um, which I haven't done in other places that we have restaurants, but I have done here. When you go to a bar and you're, I, I think about this a lot as a chef. Right? I, when I go to places, I travel a lot, probably not as much as you. But when I, I go to a new town, you're, you know, what Kansas City, you don't know anybody. You go to a place, might be good. I usually go to a cocktail. This does like a little t- temperature of the restaurant. What what is like your go to cocktail or a wedding where you don't trust the bartender? Like, what's your go to um, drink? It depends more like one mood I'm in, right? Sure, but like um, let's just like generic middle of the middle of the day, generic mood. You feel. Are you fine. talking about like don't look at their list, like order a drink? Yeah, like you're just gonna be like, I need to test this place. What's what's? Oh, the I would. Drink? Yeah, I would probably do martini. This is martini. Yeah. You just say martini and let them ask you the questions. No, 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 uh, no. Hendrix, Hendrix shake and three olives. Nice. Extra cold. That's old school. There it is. That's old school. I like yeah. it. I like I like I like shaking. I know like. The bar guys don't like shaking, but I like shaking because I like the little no, pieces. Ice crystals. I like the ice crystals in it. Personally, I like I like that. No, I want you. To, um, I want I want to hear the ice rupture, and I want the crystal. I agree. Yeah, it's. And then, what is your? Do you have a favorite champagne? Like, it, like doesn't it be like you know vintage crazy? Like, no, what's like um, your go-to champagne? Yeah, I'm actually not a huge champagne guy. No. Um it's just yeah, it's not my. It, it's I'm actually had I've had some really good grower champagnes recently. And uh, it's, I would call it like, it's like the one French specifically like 
I'm not an expert in champagne. We're married. I would, I'm not an expert in anything, but I would call it fairly versed in Burgundy and Rhone and Bordeaux. Um, but yeah, champagne, um, I mean, Jacques Souloise is very nice, but it's impossible to find on a, on a list. And I have right. a couple of bottles at, at, at my house, but um, like some places have it. Um, but I'm not, I mean, there's like all the cliche answers, which are fine, but I'm not, I'm not, there's a lot of good grower champagne. Not that I'm not. Um, I got you. It's not your bag. Yeah. That's good. I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about that, about that grower scene, even though I've had it and been like, oh yeah, that's really good. Cause I'm just not so interested in champagne as I am like. And then at your Italian Barolo and like, I was say, are you carrying, you carry more Prosecco? Is like, it, it, do you guys feature more Italian? I mean, for you, uh, with, uh, with, you know, well, I would say sparkling is a funny thing because I, I tried it for the Italian restaurants. We try to do like all Italian lists for sure, yeah. but we always carry champagne, champagne because, yeah. yeah, you have to have champagne. That's the conundrum of Italian restaurants is like all Italian lists, except they almost all have champagne because you have to. And that's okay because when you go to the great restaurants in Italy, they um, have champagne. Like this, the trip I just went on, we went, we, we did, we were in Barolo, Barbaresco, and uh, Abruzzo, and we were hosted by, you know, three of the best winemakers in each region. And they like, we slept at their house. We like, they had dinner, like whatever, like, and, um, you know, we all had, every night we had champagne. Yeah. Like, and we had great French wine and we had great Italian wine. And kind of like, they start bringing stuff out of their cellars and, and their own wines, you know, right. and they start bringing their cellars stuff. So it's not, it's not so like, I necessarily don't like, don't believe that it like, if it's, it's too strong. It's it's naive to say that they only drink Italian wine in like in Italy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like or that only region wine, you know what I mean? It's true. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add or touch on? Oh no, that went by fast. It does it always goes by fast. That was pretty that was pretty It was That was good. That was a I mean, that was a great that was a great interview, but I feel like <laughs> funny, serious, cynical, nostalgic. <laughs> it's got you got all the all the things. Our thanks to Chef Andrew Carmelini for joining us. Thanks to you for listening, and... We would like to thank La Marca Prosecco for their support. From the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in a spritz or drinking straight. Essential Cooking is produced by me and Alicia, along with my co-host, James Rigato. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Connor Anderson, with production support from David Lyons, Patrick Burness, and Studios on the Pond. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. Essential Cooking is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station.